All right, so I am now recording. Hi, Luke. Hi. So, um, yeah, you had you had mentioned to me that you were wanting to talk about Calvinism, and forgive me, I actually met with uh, Paul, and forgive me, Paul, for not being able to pronounce your name. If you Paul Antleitner, Antleitner. The other charismatic Paul, who Paul Vanderclay has interviewed. Okay. But he's local here, and we met this morning, and I just talked to him for about two hours, so my voice, we'll see okay. how, how my voice does. But w anyhow, we were going to talk about Calvinism, and and I don't know, I'm, I'm equally excited to talk to you about that as, I don't know, I'm just excited to talk to you in general, because I would love to know your perspectives on it, because it's, I can't remember if during your journey you ever were involved in Calvinist circles or, th or thought or had that framework. Um, I definitely did. That was my predominant framework um, up until orthodoxy. And I'm still kind of figuring out how orthodoxy and Calvinism, the history of that and how the, um, how orthodox think of Calvinism. Um, but I don't really know where you take it. I mean, I'm obviously, I'm not an expert, but I'm, but I am a nerd and I am a theology nerd and I went deeply into the circles when I was there. Okay. So. Well, I'll tell you what my contact with it was. Okay. So, um, you know, I, after I left from the Jehovah's witnesses, I tell people I worked my way backwards through the Protestant reformation. So part of that was that I, um, started doing talks on cults you know, because of my background in the Jehovah's Witnesses, and I got involved with what Protestants call counter-cult ministries. Mm. They're, they're actually actively trying to reach people in cults, and, um, and this, was, this included some involvement with people coming at the cult phenomena, also from the legal and psychological and sociological perspective, not merely from the, um, from the religious perspective. Okay. Although it was, you know, I was involved with a wide variety of people. And I also was doing, I was also invited to do talks at a number of local churches and even some, um, you know, national conferences and things on the topic of cults and, or on the topic of Jehovah's Witnesses um, specifically. And in the course of doing that, I had a lot of contact with both the wide, wider evangelical circles and the Calvinist various denominations, Presbyterian and, um, and Reformed um, Christians and, and just others, you know. So mm -hmm. I was I'm doing things like I would maybe even go to two different churches within one Sunday, sit through their service, maybe give a talk, or I'd be talking to people in that congregation. And so... I don't know if it's because I grew up in a cult. Probably, that's probably the reason I have this. I don't know whether you want to call it a strength or a weakness, but I can quickly get the sense of a, of like the ethos of a group, mm. you know, and the way they're using their language. And I can quickly kind of fit in and sort of mirror what they're they're doing in this, not in, I don't want to say like in a false way, but just in order to be able to communicate with them, I can see mm. what are their, um, like what are their particular verbal little, um, things that they like to say, you know, their jargon and whatever yeah. and understand it. 
And during this time, I was also doing a tremendous amount of reading by different in different kinds of theology and different aspects of Christianity, because I was trying to figure out where I want, was going to be, you know. And in the course of my journey, I actually spent some time in a Lutheran congregation as a member of a Lutheran congregation. And actually, it was a Lutheran pastor who gave me my, um, my Christian baptism. Okay. So, um, I, the, um, in, for a while, I was working at that Lutheran church as a secretary because um, the, the opening had come up. They needed someone to write, like to put together their bulletin for their liturgy. So this dove me into liturgy, right? And, um, and, the, uh, and the pastor was also seeing to me as, um, you know, a, a divorced mom of, four kids you know who needed some little additional income kind of thing and, and also access to a computer um which i i did not personally have but i was able to like use the computer at that church to like put together my presentation and stuff that i was doing at other churches so it was it was he was helping me out but i was work, doing work for them and um so in the pastor's study in the pastor's office there were many volumes of of the uh, Concordia Theological mm -hmm. Journal going back to, I think, all the way back to the 1930s. Mm, wow. So, um, so sometimes after I was done with what I was supposed to do, and, you know, I was <clears> just really being a receptionist, kind of like being there in case somebody knocked on the door kind of thing, I was reading through these old Lutheran theological journals. Mm -hmm. Well, a large part of that, the polemics in those journals, and they were almost entirely polemical. Mm. A large part of it was um, adversarial towards Calvinism. That was a large part of what was consuming the thinking and the writing of those journals. And I mean, even more so, of course, they were no, no fans of Catholicism either, but they were, they had, they, their real animus was towards Calvinism. So I really. In the Concordia? Yeah. Yeah. Concordia okay. is a, now we're talking about mid 20th century, like maybe 1930s, 1940s, you know, even like before the second world war kind of stuff. That's how old these journals were that I was able to just get in and sort of like, look and see what was the conversation going on. Okay. They were very anti-Calvinist. And in fact, the tone, like you, if you think that some of the polemics between Christians today are distressing, you should have <laughs> seen the tone that these journals took. I mean, they were excoriating and there was absolutely no distinction between the thinking of a person and the person. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it was, there was like no sense of, oh, you're making an ad hominem. You know, it was all one. You know, if you yeah. had these ideas, you were, <laughs> you were held in, you were held in contempt. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I, I spent some time looking through that and I thought it was quite interesting. It was giving me a kind of a sense of the background of where I was currently sitting. 
okay. the same time, I was also, of course, studying, you know, Lutheran doctrine and, and the uh, Lutheran approach to things. And I came to realize that, well, oh, I got to tell you one other thing. Yeah. So around this time, I was at a conference. Um, I think it was called Evangelical Ministries to New Religions Conference. And um, there were a couple of guys there who had who had been in the California Re, uh, Bible Answer Man show. Yeah. And they were reformed. Okay. So, um, so anyway, <clears throat> we, we happened to be sitting at a table together, and they knew that I was in a Lutheran in a Lutheran parish, Lutheran church, and they were, you know, Calvinists. And we're sitting at a table together eating lunch or something. And all surrounding us are all these other Christians, most of whom were like, you know, evangelical, ranging from the um, believe it, receive it, name it, grab it, <laughs> or blab it, grab it, um, name it, claim it crowd, and the um, and various evangelical um, churches, charismania people, um, just a wide variety of the whole evangelical swath of evangelicalism mm -hmm. so one of these guys kind of leaned forward to me at the table and he said and he's looking around at all these other christians who don't have the kind of systematic thinking you know theology that you've got in calvinism mm -hmm. and he says don't you don't you think that that we lutherans and calvinists you know we lutherans and the reformed have to stick together to carry forward the banner of the reformation because you can see that these people are you aren't going to do it Hmm. And I just started laughing. I said, you have, you guys have no idea how, how deep, deeply in the DNA of Lutheranism is a contempt for Calvinism. Cause I had been reading all this stuff. I huh. said, I said, you guys just don't do not realize how, how to what depths there is that there is a cleavage in that thinking. Hmm. the lutherans would much rather would much rather make common cause with the catholics than they would with the calvinists at least hmm. in the conservative lutheran you know arena that i was in that would that i was in the lcms of course yeah. i don't know what they're doing over there in you know the um the lca or those other bodies but the lcms was real conservative at that time well, that's so interesting because my greatest familiarity is with the LCMS. It's what my um, my family by marriage is in that world, and and so I had one of the um, pastors there had given me the Concordia and think, but I always, and I guess this is just showing my ignorance. Uh, I always I always thought Lutherans were Calvinists. Oh no. <laughs> so, so you could, I mean, so what, so would, I mean, I don't want to derail your narrative, but then, so how would they, in the, in a Protestant frame, how would they categorize their understanding of like sovereignty and free will? Does it fit into like a Calvinist, Arminian, open theist box? Well, I would say, and this is going to get to why, why okay. I ended up being, feeling like I was sitting on a point of tension. Mm -hmm. the, Lu the Lutherans are not as systematic, I would say, is not as systematic in their thinking or their theology as the Calvinists are. Okay. And they, they're more comfortable with mystery 
their um, their sense of ecclesiology is is different from the Calvinist sense, and a lot of it is more. I almost want to say, a lot of it feels like it's almost more aesthetic than than actually nailed down theologically. But they definitely have these points of tension. And the mm. way that I thought of it, and when you get to the predestination and, um, you know, all of that, they're more comfortable with a more mis- myster- mystery, you know, mm. relying on God's grace kind of thing without, you know, the double predestination they do not hold to. Mm. And so when you're, you know, as a Lutheran, I really started feeling like I was sitting on a point of tension. If I wanted something that satisfied that kind of like intellectual rigor for a more systematic, a deeply systematic thought out theology, then I would either have to go towards Catholicism or towards Calvinism. I actually thought of that as the choices. Hmm. You know, that I was just sitting at a point that couldn't <clears throat> hold and would have to tilt one way or the other. And I had a lot of discussions with um, some, a couple of friends of mine about this at the time. Um, one of whom was, um, you know, um, very much anti-Catholic. Hmm. And, um, you know, so... In fact, it's my it's my anti-Catholic friend <laughs> who sent me for some reason, thinking that it was an argument against the Catholic Church, sent me Newman's essay on the development of doctrine. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, so anyway, I I felt like I couldn't sit on that point of tension and had to make a decision either way. So I went towards the towards the mm. Catholic. But I remember that, and and in the course of doing all of this, I was really trying to put my finger on what it was about the Calvinism versus I'm going to say versus the Catholicism, and mm. this point where I think the Lutherans more would make the common cause towards the Catholic versus the Calvin. And it's a real deep, it's a real mm-hmm. deep thing. It's not, I, I don't, I have never seen anyone else explicate it, but it's what I came through in my mind. And I think when you hear it, that you're going to go, ah, <laughs> okay. So here it is. I think that what Calvinism does is it makes God's fatherhood a function of his sovereignty. Mm. Whereas in the Catholic understanding, in in Orthodox understanding, God's sovereignty is a function of his fatherhood. Mm. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to, I can see the wheels are turning in your head. (laughs) Well, it's, it's connecting to something I've heard recently. Keep going. So, um, and, and this is no, in no way is this slam against all the amazing great Christians who are Calvinists, yeah, including absolutely. Paul Vanderclay, who I the just great, like honorable, started. venerable Paul Vanderclay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but I think that this goes, 
I think that this is underneath this this operates mm. this operates underneath people's conscious awareness that this is what's happening because of course if you if you push on the theology the trinitarian theology of the calvinist it's very rigorous mm-hmm. that god is father mm-hmm. you know from eternity that kind of thing yeah you know they would they recognize i mean they're not they're not um in argumentation with the doctrinal statements catholic doctrinal statements about the trinity right but this sense that you first your first thing that you think about or that you sense about god is his sovereignty mm. and then the fatherhood after so that you see the father so so it's like and this is not in in the problem with this is it's not in relation to the trinity doctrine it's in relation to god's relation to us Mm. so they're keeping their trinitarian when it comes to the doctrine of god it ends up being i think percolating through the way that the human person's relationship with god is so it's like god is sovereign and in order to have beings over whom to exercise his sovereignty he fathers them Mm. as that's well that's like that sounds like a sermon on romans 9 i've heard or something yeah as opposed to god is father and in carrying out his functional role as father toward his children, mm-hmm. he exercises sovereignty on their behalf. Do you see the difference between those two things? Yes. Yeah. And um, so a few thoughts that I have when you were saying that. This really reminds me of, I've been, <clears throat> so I haven't yet, uh, dove into, and I think I probably eventually will. I'm, I'm intrigued enough to David Bentley Hart's recent work on um, universalism, his book on universalism. But um, but in podcasts that I've heard recently with him talking about this, he, as he is wont to do, he talks about his <laughs> strongly worded disgust of Calvinism um, because he is adamant. So but he talks of sovereignty and he says what ha- in his, th- this is when you said that it, it triggered my mind back to what he said is he said that in Calvinism and in that frame, that sovereignty is elevated to a, to like the supreme attribute of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think the way that you said it is, is essentially just another way to say that really that his, it's it's almost as if the father is subject to the sovereignty versus the sovereignty subject to the fatherhood of right. God, and I and what and I don't know. And this is where I think David Bentley Hart would say this, and I, and I think it's true. Um, and I and I think it it flows into a lot of things that we're experiencing in the modern Christian world in the West, and a lot of what Nathan Jacob said in reaching the nuns and things, and how and how our broader vision of God that we sense intuitively 
is is rejecting a certain form of Christianity that, and this is even what you and Vervaking JP got into. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of un, non-viable Christianity is because when you elevate God's sovereignty and certain systematic understandings of His sovereignty within a frame of predestination. And even though, I mean, I don't know of any, I've never met a living Calvinist that would affirm double predestination. Um, however, I don't know how you can't it, within that logical framework. But, but when you do that, this is where I think that you said that somehow it's kept distinct from the, from the Trinitarian theology. But, but, in, but when, you, when you put sovereignty... When fatherhood is is not higher in the hierarchy than sovereignty, so that you lose your vision of God is clouded with like you know the the prodigal son and the the parable of the lost sheep and the when when you don't understand the reconciling fathering love of God or when that is put in as an inferior thing to the sovereignty and predestination that that does get into Trinitarian issues because you've messed, you've clouded, I would say the image of what the father is. Well, here's, here's what I would say about it. I think there, I think their Trinitarian theology remains technically correct. Mm. Okay. But what it does is it, makes a break between the Trinitarian theology and the theology of um, the the incarnation, redemption, justification, all of that. In other words, there's a, and this is hard to talk about because there are definitely ontological differences, but there's a, Mm. we're supposed to be Christ's brothers. Yeah. So you get into this whole thing of, you know, you're create what you're doing is you're creating a a a way in which God is the Father of Jesus in a way that He is not our Father, but He is, of course, the Father of Jesus in a way that He's not our Father, because He's He's by nature Jesus's Father, and He's our Father by adoption. So. It's difficult to to tease this out, but there's a sense in which it's too much, there's too much of a difference. So there's a a right and a wrong difference. Okay, so when Jesus was at the tomb and uh, Mary Magdalene, he was talking to her and he said, um, you know, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my god and your god Mm. right he didn't say i'm ascending to our father jesus never says our father except when he's telling the disciples how to pray he never puts father fatherhood right the fatherhood of god with him and on the same level as a fatherhood of us because we're God's children by adoption. He's God's child by nature. Whereas he is, he is the father is the God of Jesus, not by nature, 
but by grace. It's in his coming and taking on flesh and becoming human that he then addresses God the Father as God. Otherwise, he would not. So he makes that distinction. He doesn't say, I'm ascending to our Father and our God. He says, my Father and your Father, my God and your God. So because there's mm. a distinction in the relationship, there's a difference in the relationship there because of who Christ is eternally. So, mm. so, so there is a distinction, but there has to be, the distinction is not, at, I, almost, I don't know if I want to say that it's a, not on the level of, I guess, love maybe i could say that because the the right because the my father will love you as he loves me they come and we will come and dwell with you and all of that language that's there well i was thinking of the high priestly prayer yeah when you were talking about that yeah yeah so there's that there's this drawing of us into the identity of christ for being beloved of the father right and so even though there is ontologically a distinction definitely between us and jesus in terms of him having the nature of god and the nature of man yeah so i mean the love you know you what if you follow the calvinism out logically the way that god deals with us as human beings is so divorced from his love of christ it's it doesn't flow through so i think it takes the trinitarian i know i'm being so i'm so rough in the way i'm expressing this but it doesn't take that trinitarian theology and it doesn't send it through all the levels of being society family person the way it should, it way it does in Catholicism and in Orthodoxy. So now I'm done. Okay. <laughs> I've reached the limits of my power. So, so what I was thinking, I mean, usually when I'm in conversation with people, I have a few voices in my head. You know, I have where I think I am. I have previous iterations of myself and alternate perspectives speaking in devil's advocates um so as you were talking i would say i think and i think i'm still able to embody somewhat of a calvinist perspective i think a calvinist or my former calvinist self would say in the in a conversation like this that it's not that i think within the frame they would say that that god only loves human beings through christ um but then but then this i think the 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 category and the way the system would all work is that but but god only loves those that are in christ and those are the elect and that has to do with like the whole tulip you know that has to do with the limited atonement the atonement was only for the elect it was for those that god had predestined before the foundation of the world to be in Christ. And so they think that those that are in Christ 
are loved by God. And I think they would say that it, I mean, I think all Christians would say from every perspective, I think, <laughs> I don't know how else you could think of this, that, that human beings are only loved in Christ. But depending upon your frames of how you construct that and how you think of that, um, that's going to be, you're going to flesh that out differently. You know, a Calvinist, a Calvinist would say that the, to be loved in Christ is to be elect. <clears throat> and, and, we, and we know those that are elect who are sealed in the spirit, who have, I mean, if, if you just ask a Calvinist, I mean, different ones are going to have different answers of how you know who's elect. And in my experience, most people who are Calvinists, who are very thoughtful at some point, have existential crisis where they wonder, like, how do I know if I'm elect? What if I'm not elect? And I only think I'm elect. And it spins you in this whole cycle. And so, and so I don't know that a Calvinist would say that it's not in Christ that you are loved. And I don't know what that means for your... For your um, how trinitarian it is well okay I, I see i'm not really it's not really the trinity doctrine where the fault line is it's something to do with god's relationship with his creation and relationship with us that then somehow gets very to me cut off from the trinitarianism in some way okay so you know, the love is in this respect, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us, right? So, um, and while we were yet sinners, right, Christ died for us. Mm -hmm. And so um, this, um, this kind of gener generate initiative, taking generative love of God precedes precedes our union with Christ through baptism or through belief or anything, right? Well, yeah, that's the Calvinist doctrine of regeneration, which is the, that, that's, I don't know if you've heard the terms monergism versus synergism, like whether or not regeneration is monergistic right. or whether synergistic. One, there's one actor or. Right. Cause that's the Calvinist perspective is that's, that is the initiating grace of God because we are these because we are dead in our trespasses and sins and they take that in a very I mean interestingly symbolic way because <laughs> I mean spiritualized way I guess um of because they say it because I I mean I've heard countless not countless but many sermons about that very thing that like salvation is not like making a sick man. Well, it's like making a dead man live. And right. so they just say, you know, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're by nature enemies of God and, and doing evil things, living in this life. I mean, all that Pauline language and then God in his mercy makes us alive together with Christ. But then this is the hard part about all that conversation is the devil is in the details is what do all those things mean? Um, and, so, I mean, and I would say any conversation on Calvinism, I was thinking this as I was, as we were talking, would not be, would not be even close to uh, doing justice to the topic if we didn't talk about Romans 9. Because I know, like, the Calvinist in me is always going to go there, um, which is what it, um, and so I would like your take on that too, but it's the, 
it's what if, you know. Um, so this is in where to start in Romans 9. I don't want to read the whole thing. <laughs> but it's... Why uh, my Bible? I don't, I'm not sure it's in this. Oh, here it is, right here. <laughs> well, you're a Catholic. You don't have a Bible. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a bad joke, I guess. So it's talking about Jacob and Esau. And so it's... Just, oh, yeah. Jacob, maybe, I, have, Jacob yeah. I have loved, Esau I have hated. Right. And so then it goes on then. So it says... Just vessels as of written, wrath, vessels of war. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it goes yeah. on to say then, what shall we say then that there is no injustice with God? Is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs but on God who has mercy for the scripture says to Pharaoh for this very purpose, I raise you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens who he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder. Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, which the version I've normally read is predestined for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And so then it goes on. Um, but that is, that text, I know will come up with every Calvinist in my yeah. life when you start talking about this conversation. And, and I mean, it gets into the broader conversation of Romans 9 in isolation from Romans 9 through 11 or 12. And... <laughs> Or, you know, Romans, it, or Romans 8. Yeah. You know, that the, the um, that the creation is subjected to futility. Yes. Right. And, and it ends in like the reconciliation of all things. Right. <laughs> um, which, I mean, and this gets into like, this is essentially, all that reminds me of, this is essentially David Bentley Hart's argument. One of his big arguments from his book is that, and he says this, and I, and I can't fully flesh it out, and he's not here to say it, but he says any any framework, any logical, rational frame, Christian framework that isn't universalist has internal inconsistencies. Like that's what he says. And so, because, because really apart from, um, so I don't know that passage. I don't know exactly what Paul is arguing for in that passage and what he's saying. I mean, I have ways that I would interpret it within a universalist lens, but, but I know that's where Calvinists go. A Calvinist reads that and they say, God picks and chooses. He loves Jacob. He doesn't like Esau. Jacob is called. Esau's not. Pharaoh isn't called. He's, God hardens him and he softens others. I mean, that, that, that passage fits right into the whole tulip framework. Yeah. It does, and I and I understand that. Now, one of the things, actually, went at some point in my in my 
backwards journey through Protestantism. I actually went to like a Billy Graham crusade training thing. And, um, and you know, they teach you to do the Romans Road thing, right? Which you know, right? And, um, and one, one thing I figured out in time was that if you go to a particular book of the Bible or passage of scripture with the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. Oh, <laughs> <Okay? laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's true. It seems like the Romans has one of those books that people will go to it, and the question they're asking is, you know, what is, how, how can I be saved? <laughs> and yeah. I don't think that that's what was on St. Paul's mind when he wrote the book of Romans. Let me tell you what I think was on his mind. Okay. What I think was on his mind was this. You know, I, I've, had this, I've had this encounter with Christ, and I've been commissioned with him to do this um, preaching, you know, to the world of the Gentiles. I, who am a Jew, and who, you know, grew up, following the law know that christ is the redeemer of mankind now having come to these conclusions about christ what can i now say about the status of the jewish people what what where do i land in terms of my people who i love those for whom if God would save them, I would be willing, as he can pretty much concludes in the book of Romans, I would be willing to go to hell for all of them. Yeah. Myself, personally. Yeah. Right? I would be willing to be separated from Christ on their behalf, if only. Right? Yeah. What can I now say? And that is his entire argument going back through salvation history in into the although he would never use the term salvation history but going back into what we like to call salvation history now all the way back to the separation of the jewish people from the pagan culture and and all of that and what people should know about god based on the, their observation of the natural world were their minds not darkened by sin etc all of that the whole thing all the way through is to answer that question that's the question that Paul is mm. dealing with. And that's what his, the burden of his heart is in writing the book of Romans. And how do I now account for these Gentiles being brought in? And, and if they're brought in and they're replacing my people, what do I say about this? What's going to happen to my people? That's, that's like really what he's, wrestling with it in this to me that what i see him wrestling with him through this text so i think that that you know and that's not to discount anything that he says in the book of romans or, or to take anything or to pick and choose oh i like this first not that first kind of thing mm -hmm. but it's to look at what is the burden of the argument that he's making through that book um yeah and so i think that the whole kind of like picking the few verses out, the four or five verses that are that walk of the Roman road to get somebody to accept Christ, I think is, I think is not a good use of the, it's not a good use of that text. 
It's certainly, well, let me put it this way, it's an extremely unsophisticated the use of that text. Yeah, well, and, and that's one, I guess it's one, um, looking at Romans 9 and whether or not you look at it context of the whole Romans or Romans <clears throat> 8 through 11, 12, I mean, you, uh, that's one, one angle. Uh, that's an exegetical angle, which isn't, isn't unimportant. And then looking at the, the whole scope of scripture and then also bringing in all these other factors that we were talking about earlier of even like your in what a certain perspective on. Yeah, you're freezing up there, Luke. On, on, does to your image and your conception of father because really there, there you are yeah we're gonna have to repeat that um we're gonna have to repeat that last part i think let me see if i can can you hear me yeah, I can hear you. Okay, I don't know what happened. Check. Yeah, I got a notice that my internet connection was again. unstable for a moment. So now it seems like it's mm. okay. All right. Yeah, now um, it's better. Yeah, okay. All right, so I think this will be, okay. this will be a challenge for your to, editing skills. Yeah, or you can, um, I guess, maybe repeat what you said in the last like minute. Yeah. So, so what I was trying to say is that I, I think the, the exegesis is, is one factor. And I think people that come, that come at the Bible with certain philosophical presuppositions about the Bible and revelation and foundationalism in a certain way that they understand the text is, is revealing things almost objectively to them about God and the nature of things. Those are all assumptions inherent within that, but but I think the intuition of what elevating sovereignty above fatherhood does is also important, and and arguably equal equally is important because because this is the thing, and I think this is what D David Bentley Hart essentially is trying to say is that if you if you argued in your own family, like my family, I have three kids. If I was to argue, like one of them I loved, one of them I hated. And it was just to to show the the wonders of my the wonders of my the wonders of my sovereignty. You would say that's atrocious and evil and wicked, and you're a terrible father. But yet, but yet, we can't take that logic and apply it to God because then, if you do that, or if you said this to a Calvinist, they would say like, God works in mysterious ways. These are things that are too wonderful for us. Who am I to question God? Um, you know, or or an appeal to mystery, right? So, like this is this is my problem with Calvinism is that personally I have never seen how 
you can get around double predestination. If God is electing for people for salvation in Christ and union with Christ and heaven and the new heavens and the new earth and all that, um, then, then necessarily he's not electing people for it. And so either, either in a passive way or an indirect way or whatever, he's electing people for reprobation for, for hell. Right. Unless you're some form of a Christian universalist and you believe that even through that and who knows what happens through all things that eventually God is going to reconcile things to himself through purgatory or some sort of like C.S. Lewis, the great divorce or whatever. But like there's, but if you believe in, in an, in a hell that goes on forever and eternal, there's a lot of exegetical issues with the word eternal biblically. Um, and how it's translated, but um, but if you believe in an unending hell, particularly one of conscious torment, for people and you're a Calvinist, that God's a monster. <laughs> like I just and I can't see any way around it. And I, and again, like you could appeal to mystery, and I guess you know that's fine. At least that that's a way to assuage your god-given conscience for realizing that that's monstrous and i but then but there have been calvinists and i mean this is why like this i always talk about george mcdonald and his sermon on justice because i love it so much because like if you're a calvinist and you haven't read george mcdonald's sermon on justice you're not you're not dealing with the best critiques of your of your worldview um because he he speaks strongly against that view of God and and doesn't mince his words and uh and he says and, and i mean and, and he says that essentially he doesn't believe that even people who profess to believe that really believe it because it's it's too monstrous and he's like and i and I know some of these people and they're too good of people to believe in a God like that um and so that's where the argument for me really, really starts to break down. Like I, I understand Romans nine, I understand the general framework, but, but I also have a belief that God is better than me. And, and, and I, and it, and yes, you, I could appeal to mystery that God is somehow better than me. I could as a Calvinist. And I think I used to do this, that God is somehow better than me but yet there's elect and there's reprobate and he has elected those. And I don't see a way around double predestination. And somehow that is, that is glorious and loving and good in a way that I can't understand, but I can't articulate it and talk to you about it in words. Right. I have to punt to mystery. I think, I think that to go back to like the say, let's say like the conversation that I have with John Vivekey. Okay. I think that in, in, in speaking of Romans, you know, this Romans um, 10, uh, 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. But that's yeah. really a stand in for all of us. All day long, he is holding out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people. <laughs> I was thinking after I did one of my Ratzinger videos at one time, that I should have said, 
where he talks about turning around mm. you know, making that that conversion that turn that that if there was a there was a theme song that god was was um for god's relationship to the human race it would be turn around look at me <laughs> you know that there's that constant he's making a constant appeal okay so when john reveki is talking to me on um when we were talking with JP, I don't know. You, I don't know if you saw that, or you only saw Paul Vanderclays. I saw. I started watching it, so I don't think I saw the end. I watched Paul's, and I saw the beginning. Okay, so the more that okay, so at the end, I asked John Verveke, "What is your definition of being?" Mm, great and, question. And. Um, he gets into this language that every time he's pushed into the metaphysics or since i pushed um enticed to talk about or whatever you want to say when he starts talking about the metaphysics same thing happened when he talked about with jonathan pajot same mm -hmm. thing happened when he had his one-on-one -on -one conversation with jp before jp and i spoke mm -hmm. that you get to a point where you in some way using personalist language you're talking about something that um, is has an activity of of structuring, of um, of ordering, of creating, you know, creating possibility or opening space for possibility. You go on, and you keep trying to use to use this language and say, but not a person, not a person, and yet all of the the verbs that you're using mm -hmm. are actually the only way that we know what those things are is is as a, as the actions of a person and so um where was i why was i mentioning that oh you were because because the reality of the reality of things is and even john verbeke uses this language shining right the mm -hmm. reality of things shines to us and through that shining, there's someone behind that shining through to us. And I think that no, whether you're, you know, regardless of your uh, affiliation as a Christian, I think that one of the things that happens because you do encounter Christ in the Gospels, the love of Christ shines through to you. But I think that even if you go outside of the Christian framework, those who may even be um, for intellectual or other reasons saying no to that particular way of construing reality, that, that, that it's still shining through to them. I mean, St. John says that Christ is, Christ, uh, Christ is the light that enlightens every man. And yeah. so, so I think it's, I think that when you talk about the, the Calvinists and having this very hard, rigid structure in their head and this double predestination, that the, the penetration of the messages of Christ in the gospel and the parables, like you mentioned, you know, the prodigal son and all that, it, it still penetrates to them. It keeps them, it, it keeps them from walking around thinking that God is a monster. They don't. They love him because mm -hmm. they're still, in spite of this right. screen 
of this um, doctrine, they're yeah. still experiencing his love. Yes. And so, and so that's, that's what I think is, makes the difference. Yeah. But that's at that, that, that's at that, um, the experience of God's love. And I think that's essentially what George McDonald was trying to say that they don't really believe it is because they are experiencing God's love and they are seeing these other things. And they're, and that's what he was saying. They're good men. They can't believe this. They're good men. It's impossible. And so he's saying like in there, I mean, this is what I would call like the noetic, the noetic vision. They're, They're seeing through to the goodness. And so, and that's the thing. And through narrative and through story, it transcends that hard thing, the intellect. Story is the thing that plays in all those places and love. Right. Like that's what Lewis himself said that. Like that's why he said he started writing fiction is because it gets past the watchful gatekeepers. It teaches <laughs> right. you things that you don't even know you're learning. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I agree with you. And I think we all have, we all have, I mean, that's, what we're essentially talking about with Calvinism is the same thing that's going on in this broader meaning crisis is like the difference between conscious belief and acted belief. And those are, sometimes those are more incongruence in certain individuals than in other individuals. But like we are more than our mere intellect comprehends, you know? And so like this, that's why with a Calvinist is, I don't know if they want to, you could maybe say there's like a Calvinist one and a Calvinist two. There's a Calvinist one who acts according to those professed beliefs and, and they're going to probably not be someone I like that much, (laughs) you know, and there's, and there's a Calvinist number two who professes to believe those things and acts if, and acts more in tune with that, with the noetic belief of, the beauty of a loving father that's shining all over the place and me and that person are going to be fine. Right. Well, I wonder, you know, as we talk about this whole thing with fatherhood, see, we have, we have such a crisis of fatherhood in our culture. And I kind of wonder if deep underneath that, that kind of, Protestantism hasn't in some way caused a deformation in the in the um, deep in the structure maybe at the archetypal level of fatherhood so that the only thing that really can overcome it is going to be a real either having like Paul Vanderclay has an excellent father mm-hmm. in this world, you know, which he by every account had or some kind of way for fatherhood, loving fatherhood to once again, find its expression. I think Jordan Peterson, Jocko Willing, mm-hmm. guys like that are pushing that out into the world. And you see how many people respond and overcome their sense of meaninglessness mm. by that encounter with that with that kind of fathering going on. Mm. And so I think all of these things are tied in so deeply and um, 
psychologically at levels that we can't even really, you know, almost really explicate. But, mm -hmm. but it's good stuff for our next conversation, which has to be about the masculine feminine stuff, right? Oh, that's, that's just where I was going to, I was just going to tease that because that's what I was thinking. I actually got into that a little bit in my conversation with Paul because, yeah, I think, I think those the, talking about the masculine and the feminine and masculine and feminine spirituality in regard to the meaning crisis to me is almost one of the deepest and mo most profound ways to talk about it. And I think that's true. I think our culture is very deficient of healthy masculinity and um well, and in a way, I don't, it's both too, and, and healthy femininity, because it's been my contention recently that most, most of our cultural expressions in the West are masculine. They're either overtly um, unhealthy masculine, which is too domineering, too controlling, too judging, too incisive, too like n not creating enough space, kind of like what Peugeot was talking about the other day with... Um, Who was that? That wasn't JP. It was the one before that. Oh, it's when he was talking with Raveki, maybe, but they were talking about opening up space. Yeah. That's what yeah, the feminine. feminine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's not a lot of that in American culture. It's just judgment, 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 identitarianism, labels, judge, judge, judge. So we don't have a lot of space. I actually think that's what these local meetup groups are where people are feeling free to come in and be open and authentic. That's, that's a resurgence of femi divine femininity because really like the, a lot of the, and then we have femininity. I think we have masculinity ma masquerading as femininity. And so I agree. I think a lot of that is at the core of what's going on too, but it's, um, and this is why story is so important is because it's, it's one thing to talk about things at the idea level, but like, but even with like Paul and his dad and how emotional he was in the last video, you can't, it's really hard to argue with, with an icon of, a, of a, of a, the divine father, you know, which is essentially what like yeah. Paul's dad was like, he just, how can he, it's, it was shining through him. Paul said that right. when he was sitting there in worship. The, that's that's at the level of like what we're making Peugeot we're talking about that is narrative but like but that narrative as an icon transcends to what's shining through behind it right transcends all these logical categories and debates yeah well it's it, you know it's so complicated okay so you know I did one video about receptivity the agency of receptivity uh, talking about the feminine and um and I want to get into this, like the next video I want to do about it, about it is the, um, the distortion or the, I almost want to call it the sins of femininity, but I, that's not quite mm. exactly right. But how those traits of femininity can be perverted and then become malevolent, right? Mm. I want to talk about that. And then start talking about feminine vocation, masculine vocation, but also the understanding that, you know, which to some extent this, this gets a little bit into the Jungian stuff, but it's also 
it's also present in the orthodox iconography that the masculine contains the feminine and the feminine contains the masculine mm. of course it's in the um it's a little symbol the um the um you know the symbol with the swirl in it and the circle with the swirl oh the uh the yin yang the yin yang symbol right it's in there that the masculine contains the feminine and the feminine yeah absolutely so so it's a you know when these things become unbalanced they become unbalanced at all the levels Mm -hmm. you know um and so i think that that's you know that's what we have to look at we have to look at all the levels because it's it's the individual human person it's the family it's the structure of society this thing with um with masculinity and when you say you know um and talking about fatherlessness so i was talking recently with a man who works at um a particular um um kind of job where there's just a lot of physical stuff that has to be done there's a lot of screws that have to be turned there's a lot of stuff that Mm -hmm. has to be cut there's a lot of um things that have to be caulked there's things that have to be put together Mm -hmm. and assembled and all of that kind of work and working with machines and all of this stuff and he was talking about the younger men that are coming in to the company now and how how completely unfamiliar they seem to be with the physical world yeah with with turning screws with picking up um with picking up a power tool and handling it and all of that and just the amount of training and stuff that it takes and Mm. he attributes it to i guess this is what happens when you have a fatherless generation Mm. you know they're they're just they're their ability to act as men in the in contact with the physical world has just you know the loss of that you you take you know he's just talking about one workplace but you start structuring that all through the society and then the men to whom all of this stuff has been so intuitive all of their lives that world war ii and just right after a generation as they pass off the Mm. scene you know and you lose that you just are losing so much people talk about things like brain drains and and things like Mm. that but you're you're really losing competencies you're losing competencies in the world that the whole society needs so badly and then i don't know if you um i don't know if you ever heard there's a i heard it on like a an NPR podcast. Um, I think, um, I can't remember the name of the podcast I heard it at, but I know that there's a book or article about it. Have you ever heard that one, that thing about the useless jobs or the BS jobs or the, oh, the pe- uh, meaningless jobs? That's what it was about. How many oh. people in the society think they have meaningless jobs mm-hmm. and how meaningless jobs are created? It's 30 to 40% of people working jobs in corporate environments that think that their job is meaningless that it actually contributes nothing of value yeah i don't do anything all day i don't right i'm getting paid for doing nothing now how demoralizing is that i mean how much of the crisis is that well joe rogan talks about that all the time you know, that's a huge percentage. I mean, you mentioned him, but he's, 
he's one of those almost just uh you know images of of kind of a you know he's got a lot of masculinity in a lot of ways or Jocko Willick or or even uh Nick Offerman who you might not be familiar with he was a guy on this TV show Parks and Recreation but he's a com- comedian but he also does he's he's really famously known for being um a bit of a uh you know jack of all trades he has a woodworking shop he does a lot of woodworking stuff he's mm-hmm. like he wrote a book called how to build your own canoe and he often laments about the you know the very thing that you're talking about um you know but yet he was a classically trained ballet dancer and he does theater and the arts you know and he's yeah. he's a man right um, yeah i i do agree that it's the breakdown of these things well i don't know we we've kind of given a great teaser about it, but like, I think there's a lot to be, there's a lot to be mined in that world. Um, and I'm so thankful. And I just want to, I really am thankful for, cause women in general are, um, less common in this discord, Paul Vanderclay, this little corner of the corner. Um, <laughs> yeah. but some of the ones, some of the ones that we have are just fantastic. Like, um, I, and I haven't interacted with uh, Sevilla at all, but you're wonderful. Karen's wonderful. Sarah's wonderful. Shelly on the Discord's great. I mean, there's a lot of. I'm uh, Sherry and Shelly. Sherry is. I adore Sherry. I mean, I'm so. When I see very. I mean, I guess it's masculine and feminine, it's men and women. But when I see, like what you're saying, that light shining through particular individuals where they when people are being what they're supposed to be in in the best way that they can I get so excited (laughs) yeah it's a lot of fun yeah there's just some terrific people I mean just the level of the discourse is just amazing I mean I I feel all the time like this is something I have to live up to (laughs) yeah well you're doing a great job. I mean, you're, you're a, you know, very great voice in the, in the throng, in the symphony. Well, thanks. So are you, Luke. Yeah. Your, your spirit is so, is so wonderful and patient and and loving towards people. So, um, you're, you're terrific. (laughs) So it's, it's, uh, it's great. We're all, it's, you know, this is, I think this is a, this is a fruit, you know, this is a, this is going to be, one or possibly a number of the jewels in Paul Vanderclay's crown. <laughs> oh man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No kidding. And he's, yeah. I don't know. He's such a humble guy. He's evolving. Well, he even take, I mean, he takes criticism well and everything. Like I think it's interesting. His last video was, I'm interested. I hope he re- gets the courage to release whatever video he was trying to release. I mean, I want him to be, I don't know. I want him to be true, you know, like that, um, the inner man or the inner voice or what Jordan Peterson talks about or the true self. I mean, he, should, you know, in, in quiet, in the stillness and prayer, he, sh- he should just follow what he knows to be true and releasing it. But like, I don't know, I see stuff happening with, with him that I think are, you know, are hard, but good potentially too. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it's widening. It's the, um, I mean, with the conference that they're going to do in Canada, I mean, it's, it's widening 
Yeah. And, um, and hopefully it still remains with the, you know, with the love that it has. Um, I know it's hard. The, the more people you bring in, the more the margins will start to invade and things yep. like that. That was my, I had a lot of fear about going, starting a YouTube channel or even going my first video I did with Paul Vanderclay mm. um, because I looked at comments under various YouTube channels for a number of years mm. and I saw that there was a lot of just rude brutality and viciousness toward women on, on the internet. And um, so I really was pretty hesitant, but Paul encouraged me a lot and I've been very, continue to be very encouraged. Uh, John Verveke has given me a lot of encouragement. Sevilla King, um, she was like, she did it first, I think, in this little area. And it was watching her that really gave me the, gave me the courage to do it and kind of a model of, of how to do it. So I, I owe a great deal to her. And I'm going to be talking to her very soon, too. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> Wonderful. All right, Lupo, it was great talking to you. and. Um, and um, I will, I'm, uh, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, let me stop the recording, say bye, okay. and then we can talk about what I'm supposed to do technically. <laughs> okay. Okay, bye for now. Yeah.